This boy was literally dying in front of my eyes. And despite letting people know that there was a major problem, nobody was hearing me. But I didn't have the numbers proof. I didn't have clinical data, but I knew in my gut, I knew there was something wrong. I called the resident at least five times during that night, if not more. Each time becoming more and more agitated, each time expressing my concerns further and further, each time going again to my charge nurse, each time charting, you know, doctor notified, no action taken, and each time feeling my gut getting sicker and sicker because I knew that there was a problem. I knew something was wrong. I knew the child needed attention or he would die, but I didn't know what I could do anymore. I felt like I was failing. I was failing what I was taught. I had failed everything I'd ever wanted in my life. I had failed that child. I had failed his parents. I had failed myself. And I knew that I never, ever wanted that to happen to me again. That's Diana. She's now retired after 46 years in nursing. But at the time this story took place, it was early in her career. In fact, it was her first day on the job after finishing her orientation at a trauma center. And I was given a patient who was about 10 years old and had RISE syndrome. When I received him, he was on a ventilator. And as the night progressed, I was feeling concerned. The one thing that concerned me the most was a change in his capillary refill. The capillary refill will tell you a little bit about the patient's hemodynamics, his cardiac abilities. And it was concerning me because it kept slowly getting worse and worse. So I went to my charge nurse, had her evaluate. She said uh, not to worry about it. I was worried. I continued throughout the night going back out, talking to her, talking to other colleagues. Again, everybody assured me this was normal and not to be upset. As the evening It's a 12-hour shift, so as the hours were advancing and the capillary refill was increasing to four to five seconds, very significant, I was like, no, no, I need to call the doctor. So I called the resident, and she assured me that, again, everything was fine. And again, I said, okay, because... I was being pressured to say, okay. Diana's problem was that her gut told her that her patient urgently needed medical intervention. But she lacked any clinical data to back it up. And as a young nurse with limited experience, no one was listening to her. I felt like I was an island. And despite letting people know that there was a major problem, nobody was hearing me. And I didn't know what to do to make it work. Diana's job was to save this boy's life, but she didn't know how. I knew the child needed attention or he would die. I knew that I had to do something, but I didn't have, I didn't have any power. I had no power. This is 
They Don't Teach That in Nursing School, a podcast from Figure One about how nurses think. I'm Connie Levi. After 16 years at my hospital in the nuclear medicine department, I was ready for a change. COVID had just hit, and I saw my nurse friends struggling. I decided to go to nursing school so I could help out. After years in medicine, I've learned the most essential lessons are those you learn on the job. And that's exactly what this show is about. This is a show where we provide unique, practical solutions to some of the most challenging problems nurses face. From learning how to operate a ventilator during the height of COVID, to dealing with that attending physician who's a bully. We'll be sharing the secrets of the trade from nurses, doctors, and medical researchers. You know, the professionals you wish you could consult with, but rarely have the time or opportunity. You'll feel seen, gain wisdom, and be better equipped to respond to all the unpredictable stuff that gets thrown at you. Today's case is all about how to trust your gut when you lack clinical data, and comes to us from retired nurse Diana Struthers Stanton in California. You'll recall from our opening that Diana was at her wit's end. She told her colleagues that her patient needed urgent care, but no one was listening. Until all of a sudden, everyone was. Literally, what saved this child's life in this instance was not me. What happened was day shift came on. It was quarter to seven. A very experienced nurse walked into the room to take my patient. And as she walked in, I was attempting for about the fourth time to get a blood pressure through an automatic blood pressure cuff. It wouldn't read. It wouldn't read at all. So I kept waiting, pressing it, waiting. And that's what I was literally doing when she walked in. She looked at me and looked at the kid and said, what are you doing? And I said, I can't get a blood pressure. She goes, how long have you been trying? I said, probably the last 30 minutes I've been trying, but I can't get one. All she said was, oh my God, left the room and came back with an army, literally. And I was pushed out of the way. They took over and they saved that kid's life. I think it's safe for me to say that Diana's not alone here. Every nurse, and most care providers for that matter, know what Diana's talking about. Gut feelings seem to come in one of two varieties. Either you have a nagging sensation that something is wrong or a sense of reassurance that everything's okay. But in both cases, you may not have much proof to back it up. So what do you do? And should we give gut feelings a little more or less credit? Gut instinct has a lot of value. And if your gut instinct says something is amiss, I wouldn't ignore it. Sarah Kim is a family doctor based in Toronto, Canada. She's also a specialist in sports and performance medicine and emotion-focused mindful psychotherapy. Trusting your gut is actually a really complex response. It's an accumulation of experiences designed to try and avoid pain 
And so you learn not to touch things that are hot. And then as life goes on, when you even approach something that might be hot, there's a tingling feeling that comes, knowing that that's a source of danger. So although gut feelings might seem like a tangle of intuitive reactions, they're actually a highly organized set of sense memories designed to keep us safe. Even though Diana may not have had a lot of clinical experience as a nurse, there was something in her gathered experience up to her lifetime at that point, which was allowing her to identify a problem. But we tend to value facts over feelings. Diana didn't have any hard numbers to validate what she was experiencing, so it was easy for others to discount it. Sometimes it's hard to even articulate what's truly behind a gut feeling. The gut instinct doesn't always come with something that you can articulate as a quote-unquote hard piece of evidence that something is wrong. And part of it, again, is because gut instinct is something that's tied to an emotional feeling. Medicine is, you know, we like to think of it as very scientific and that we make our decisions in a scientific way. Uh, It's a highly emotional environment. Whenever you deal with human life, um, there's no way to remove that component. And so when we develop these gut instinct moments, it's also because we as practitioners have experienced loss. And when these critical situations happen where you perhaps have lost a patient or there was a bad outcome, because it's so emotionally intense, it gets encoded in our bodies in a different way. Because again, we're wired to want to avoid pain, and that includes emotional pain. It sounds like it might be more accurate to call our gut feelings critical intuition. But back to Diana's story. Is there anything she could have done differently? You know, what I would love to say to Diana was that the situation here, had the outcome been negative for the patient, would not have been her fault at all. Because she did her due diligence. Diana feels the same way. She's had years to reflect on this incident and is at peace with how she handled it. I would say you did what you should have done in the beginning. You did everything right as far as, you know, you had a gut feeling, but you didn't have the documentation. So go ahead and and talk to your peers, talk to your charge nurse, talk to your doctor on call. Do that. Diana didn't simply react to a gut feeling. She followed the protocols in place. I don't want to say everybody should be calling on every instance. There is a protocol in place. Follow the protocols. You should go first to your preceptor or your, you know, your charge nurse, your resident. But as you make your way through, know that you can go higher. But also know your limits. You know, if you're brand new and you don't understand the dynamics of what's going on, and what's even what's in your gut, it's a real thin line to have to walk. When protocols don't give you the result you need, what then? At some point, you need to go above and beyond. And what does that mean? That means if I'm not getting the answer I feel I need from my charge nurse, from the doctor or the resident that's there, who's above that resident? Okay, in this case, it was the intensivist who was sleeping soundly in his bed 
I should have probably called him at one or two in the morning and that would have been appropriate. But I was told that, now we don't call the intensivists unless like somebody's coding or we don't want to bother him and you know, you'll get in trouble. No, I know now you need to do what you need to do. And if that means calling an intensivist at 2 a.m. in the morning or any time during the weekend or worried about waking up a doctor, don't. That's their job too. There'll be times that you'll get in a lot of trouble for it because if they come in and it was a false alarm, they're gonna be not a happy camper. But guess what? They're also gonna know that when you're on, if you have a gut feeling and you have the education, experience, and understanding to know what you're doing, they're gonna appreciate that you will call them and get them in there for an issue. And believe me, I did. I have called so many doctors and not every time it was appropriate, but you know what? I don't care. Every time it was appropriate for me and for the patient, because if I hadn't and something that would have happened, I would have failed. So what I do tell people is it's really, really easy to know when to make those calls. When do you call? This is when you call. I want you to back up, look at your patient, how you're feeling, and just for a moment, pretend that patient is either your child, your mother, your husband, your wife, somebody that means the world to you. And whatever you think in your brain that you would do for that person, that's what you have to do for this patient. That's exactly what you have to do. It's important to listen to your gut, but it's equally important to listen to your colleagues and team. When somebody comes to you and says this, to not just say, well, you know, you're new or you don't understand how sick these kids can get. You need to go in and evaluate and back those people up and either explain why there's an issue or why there isn't an issue. The bottom line is you are the patient's advocate. It shouldn't have to be their parents. It shouldn't have to be anybody else. If you've accepted the assignment, that patient is your responsibility. And it's also your responsibility to be honest about how you're feeling and what you think. And to also forgive ourselves sometimes if we've done everything we feel we possibly can, whether it's educating ourselves, talking to others, calling a doctor in the middle of the night, sometimes it's not gonna end well. And in those situations, you have to know you've done everything you can do and then you can sleep at night. Thanks to Diana Struthers Stanton and Sarah Kim for speaking with us. This is They Don't Teach That in Nursing School, a podcast by Figure One. Figure One is an app that lets healthcare professionals share knowledge to improve patient care. I'm Connie Levi, your host and partner on this journey. Thanks for listening.